I've been in the ministry now 55 years, and it's been a wonderful, wonderful experience. I pastored for nearly 30 years and uh, had some awesome experiences pastoring, and then I became the president at the college and seminary and graduate school and was there for 15 years. And now for 12 years, I have been involved with Christway Ministries. It's a ministry that I started, and it never existed before, but I started it, Christway Ministries. Having grown up a far, on a farm, I knew what Agway was, and I'd heard some people in my churches talking about Amway, and I said, well, let's call this thing Christway. And <clears throat> I want it focused on Christ, and back in the book of Acts, his way was referred to as the way, so let's call it Christway. And <clears throat> we have a byline talking about building dynamic growing churches Christ's way. When I finished up at the college, I began a ministry, in an itinerant ministry, and primarily was going to do Bible conference kind of uh, ministry. I soon realized that there was an awesome need in our churches that perhaps I could help meet. And that awesome need is borne out by statistics and studies which tell us that 80% of all evangelical churches are in decline in this country. 80% in decline. 15% are plateaued. And only 5% are growing. There are reasons why they are plateaued and declining. They don't have to be that way. And so it's been my mission to try to help them figure out what can be done in order that that can be turned around and we can begin to change and make things happen for God. Uh, let me give quickly three different illustrations of churches that we have helped. <clears throat> One is in Rochester, New York. Larry and his dear wife will be aware of them. They haven't changed their message, but they have changed their methodologies, man-made methodologies pretty significantly. The church, when the current pastor was there, was, had been running for some time at about 250 people. And since that time, he had me come there and begin to meet with the leadership and uh, also speak in the church. He had come to a two-day seminar that I do for pastors where I talk about the issues of the day and why are our churches declining? What can we do? That church today has been running over 1,300 people on Sundays. And Easter Sunday, they had about 2,000 people there. Last year on Easter Sunday, they had 150 adults get saved. When's the last time you saw a church where 150 people got saved? Uh, it's been a phenomenal thing, what's been happening. And obviously, they offer praise to God, but they have zeroed in upon the things that they needed to do in order to reach people today. Another church is Bridgewater Baptist Church in uh, Montrose, Pennsylvania, which uh, some of you may be familiar with Montrose. That church got a new young pastor, and he turned to us to help him when he went there. <clears throat> and that church had never been larger than 150 people. They're downtown, landlocked. 
and they soon began to grow, and uh, they now have three Sunday morning services in their building. Uh, they have bought 40 acres of ground outside of Montrose, and they're going to be building a new facility. They are running between 600 and 700 every Sunday now, instead of 150, where they had been five years ago. They have started a, uh, another site in Halstead, Pennsylvania. Easter Sunday in the new site, they had 200 people there. And uh, they had 1,000 people all together on Easter Sunday this year. And it's been fun to watch that happen. By the way, Rochester is starting a new site in addition. They're, they're going to be multi-site. You know, it's the same church meeting in different places. And they're going to be meeting at a new site starting this year. And uh, in order to accommodate the growth that God is giving them. The other church is located in Scranton. Pennsylvania. It's pastored by a man that had been one of my kids in one of the churches I pastored. And uh, my wife, who went home to glory, had taught him in Sunday school a lot. He looked upon her as one of the early mentors of his life. I baptized him. He went to BBC, graduated from BBC, took over a little church in Clark Summit that had 30 people. Today, 23 years later, they run over 2,000 people every weekend. And two weeks before Easter Sunday this year, they baptized 158 people uh, in that one weekend. Pretty phenomenal stuff. And uh, so that gives you a taste of what we've been doing. We've been trying to help churches figure out how you do ministry today. Things have changed culturally and in every way. And some of the things that we used to do no longer are as fruitful, but there are things that are very fruitful today for God. And so we are, that's a sense of what our ministry is. <clears throat> In these 11 years now, or 12, that I've been out, God has allowed me to have ministry in over 500 churches. And I've been in 20 different countries during that period of time, helping missionaries as well. Because the same issues that we're facing in this country are being faced by missionaries around the world. Same things are happening. Culture is changing. I taught in the Philippines two courses to national pastors, and I taught about the same stuff that I teach here in this country. And they said, man, you have nailed it. This is exactly what we're struggling with in this country. And I have children that are missionaries in Ukraine, and they said to me, you've got to talk about the cultural changes that are taking place in Ukraine and why our churches are being marginalized and no longer as effective. And the national pastors as well as missionaries were there, and you can understand why. For many years, they were part of the Soviet republics. They had an iron curtain around their republics. No outside influence whatsoever. So decade after decade, they did not change in culture. Once that Iron Curtain came down, when Mr. Gorbachev was challenged to take down the wall, he took it down. And when that happened, they were exposed to the rest of the world, and there's been continuous change going on in Ukraine ever since. 
change in dress, change in music, change in everything, and the churches have remained the same, and there was a growing disconnect between the churches and their communities. There was no longer an opportunity to get into the lives of people like there had been. And they were trying to figure out, can we change? What should we change? What shouldn't we change? How can we better reach people for Christ? Are we willing as a church, if we really love lost people like Jesus loves lost people, what are we willing to do to reach them? That's the questions they were asking, and I was happy to help them figure out the answers. And it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. I have some brochures that are up here, and if you want to pick one up so you can maybe pray for us and remember us, we would appreciate it. It will give you more information. We also have a website that you can go to that's on that uh, brochure. You will be able to know what that is. We also have a monthly electronic newsletter that we send out. Electronic meaning that it goes out by email. If you have email, you can get this. So I'm going to start this pad around, and if you would like it, uh, put your name on here and uh, write out your email address very carefully, because if I can't read one of the letters or numbers, you'll never get it, <laughs> and I would like for you to. But if you get it and you don't like it, there's a place to unsubscribe. You can get out of it just that easy. So I'm going to start it right here, and if you would like it, put your name and address on our email address, and just start it down the rows, go back and forth, and then pass it over to this side, and it'll end up up here in the front, and I'll pick it up. Well, Jackie and I are happy to be here and be with you today. We're going to be talking about a theme that I have just uh, basically been developing because as I have traveled in over those over 500 churches, I feel like there is a great need in our age bracket. I'm watching people that get to be our age drop out. I mean, they quit. I'm watching people in our age that are flourishing and they are growing yet spiritually. They are very active in their churches as much as their health and strength will permit. And they are having a joyful time in the churches. And then I'm watching some other senior saints that are our age that are getting older and getting grumpier and getting harder to live with and creating all kinds of dissension in their churches over issues that are not biblically based whatsoever, but they have a preference, so they start fighting over this preference in their church, and, and they're destroying their churches. So I see a great need in this age bracket, and that's why I'm starting to do conferences now. You're the first one. So you're going to go down as notorious uh, for something here. And uh, so you're the guinea pigs. I'm going to work on you a little bit, except I really have three sessions that I'll probably do, and most of them, because the last session I want to really lay out in greater detail what you can still do. Some people think there's nothing left for me to do. Oh, there's never. That's never true. You can always have something to do, and I'll try to help you figure that out a little bit. Okay? Here's a story that I want you to relate to. 
during a visit to an assisted living home. You all know what an assisted living home is? Okay. During a visit to one, someone asked the director, how do you determine whether or not a person should be placed in an assisted living home? Well, said the director, we fill up a bathtub. And then we offer the person a teaspoon, a teacup, and a bucket. They're a prospective patient, and we want to see how they respond to that. And then we ask him or her to empty the bathtub. Oh, I understand, this individual said. A normal person would use the bucket because it's bigger than the spoon or the teacup. No, said the director. A normal person would pull the plug. Do you want a bed near the window or the door? <laughs> now, there's probably nobody here thinking about going into an assisted living place quite yet. Maybe, maybe here in the near future, but not quite yet. Hopefully, they don't give you that test. But if they do give you that test, you got one up on them. You can maybe forestall going in. Just pull the plug. Anyway, Jackie and I are somewhat in your age bracket. Uh, and so we understand your circumstances. Uh, your declining health or strength, your declining strength, perhaps your declining health, and certainly have more health issues than you used to have, probably. We understand some of your challenges of finances on a fixed income and uh, visiting doctors quite regularly and going to the labs to do the various tests and the therapists and the drugstores and trying to find time to work other things in between all of those trips that you're making. Some of you have been through the issues of grief and suffering, whether it be physical infirmities or surgeries or the homegoing of your spouse. Uh, we can relate to a lot of this. And that's why I have felt like I would like to begin to address my peers in the churches and talk to them. Here's a question I want you to think about. How do you want to be remembered after you die? Y'all do think once in a while, don't you, about that you may die someday? Uh, how would you like to be remembered? Second question. What will others say about you after you're gone from this life? I mean past the funeral, when everybody gets up and says all those wonderful things, what will they really say when they get into their homes about you? Uh, when that person passed on, we lost a great servant of Christ Jesus in our church. They left a hole that's going to be hard to fill. Will they say that about you? Or maybe they will say something more like this. When that person retired, they just dropped out of everything. They just quit doing everything. Or maybe it's too bad that person in their latter years became so grumpy and critical and angry and slanderous and divisive. I want to help us think about finishing well so that when we die, genuinely, authentically, they can say of us, that person is going to be missed. That person was an awesome follower of Christ. They made a dis difference in our church that was just so outstanding. But in order to die well, we have to live well. 
And Paul is an individual we're going to be looking at in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 to 8, where he did live well and he did finish well, and he's a model for you and me to think about and to pursue. Now, I'm going to take this text and ask three questions that I want for you to answer. You don't answer these audibly, but in your own mind, think about these questions. What kind of a departure will you have? Paul said in verse 6, For I am ready, being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand, or has come. What is Paul saying here? He is saying he's being poured out like a drink offering. This is a reference to an Old Testament ritual that accompanied certain sacrifices. By that we mean this. The Old Testament law mandated certain rituals that these people were supposed to do. They were sacrifices. They were offerings. And part of the offering was to be burned up, and part of it was to be given to the priest. At times when they made those, the worshipers would pour a drink offering or wine on top of the other offering that was being burned up. This was to be totally poured out. It was not to be given any part of it to the priest. And when the wine would hit those burning coals, the alcohol immediately was burned off. And there was a sweet smell that would come up from that wine from the sacrifice. That's talk, Paul said that's what he feels like he's having is hap, happening to him here in this text. He's being poured out as a drink offering, like that wine being poured on the coals, and he is. There's a sweet aroma that is coming up from him, just like uh, the, the, in the Old Testament. That's how his life has been lived. I'll tell you, that's what I hope can happen with me, and I think you hope it can happen with you, that you are pouring out your life like a drink offering, and there's going to be a sweet aroma that's coming from your life as you give your life totally to the Lord. Wine in the Old Testament is a symbol of joy, and joy... Uh, needs to be something that is part of our lives right up until we take our last breath, if at all possible. Far too many Christians have lost their joy. I watch in the churches when I travel in the churches, and there are people that are just oozing joy, and they're elderly. And then there's other sourpusses that are mixed in there that look like they've been sucking on pickle juice for a month. And uh, they don't have any joy in their life whatsoever. And that ought not to be the way we are. This drink offering is a symbolic way of saying, I gladly give all that I have to the Lord, including my death. I give to the Lord. It's his. He can do with me whatever he wants. Paul knew that his death was close at hand. It was not far away. He's in prison in Rome, in chains. But he's offered himself as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, Romans 12.1, all of his life. And now he's come to the end of his life where he is allowing his death and equating his death as pouring out a drink offering to God. The last thing that he's going to be able to give to God is his very death. 
So what he might really be saying is, Timothy, when you hear of my death, don't think that Nero has executed me against my will. Process that a minute. Don't think that Nero has executed me against my will because I have poured out my very life to God. And if he wants me to go through this, I will go through this. If he doesn't want me to go through this, he can stop it at any point he wants to. I'm pouring out my very life. I lay it down gladly for the Lord. Nero cannot take my life. I gladly offer it to Christ. That's really what he's saying with these words. That's a very real pattern after Christ on the cross. They did not take his life. He gave it. He laid down his life on the cross. And that's what he is saying here. You and I, when we come to that point of dying, that's how we ought to be looking upon it, that the very last thing that we're going to be able to offer to Jesus Christ is our death to him. Nobody's going to take it. Uh, God is orchestrating it. He uses the word departure here in verse 6, which is an interesting word. That word departure can, has three different figures uh, that you can think about, metaphors, word pictures. It refers to a ship hoisting the anchor, loosening the mooring ropes, raising the sails, leaving the harbor, setting sail for a distant port. That's how that word was used in the days of Paul. It also was used when the tent that had been up and that was being occupied by some individual, when they were getting ready to leave camp, they would loosen the ropes of the tent and they would break camp and leave. It was also used of unyoking an animal from the shafts of a cart or a plow in those days. So what Paul is really saying here is this. Death was like setting sail for Paul. Death was like breaking camp and loosening the heavy and letting down the heavy burden that had been part of the yoke that he had been in all of this time. Was Paul prepared to die? I want to say to you, Paul was prepared to die. It did not catch him unawares. And it was not something that he resisted, something that he was afraid of. He was prepared for it. In fact, you could write over Paul's whole life two words, including his death. No regrets. Paul lived and is dying with no regrets. There's nothing in his life that he has regrets about. In 1904, William Borden, you've heard of the Borden Food Company? Uh, he was part of that dairy family, the Borden dairy family. And he finished high school in Chicago and was given a world cruise as a graduation present. That's pretty good, isn't it? But if you got the money, I guess that's okay. Particularly while traveling through the Near East and Far East, he became heavily burdened for the lost. After returning home, he spent seven years at Princeton University, the first four in undergraduate work and the last three in seminary. While in school, he penned these words in the back of his Bible. These are great words. Here's what he put in his Bible, in the back. 
First of all, he put in no reserves. No reserves. His family had pleaded with him to take control of the business, which was floundering. He insisted that God's call to the mission field had priority. No reserves. He was not going to reserve his life for anything. He was giving it to God in its entirety. And then, after disposing of his wealth, he added these words with no reserves. No retreat. No retreat. And finally, well, let me tell you how close his death came to after all of this. On his way to China to witness the Muslims, he contracted cerebral meningitis in Egypt and died within a month. He knew that the Lord does not require success, only faithfulness, and his final words in his Bible, just before he died, he put these words, no regrets. No reserves, no retreat, no regrets. That sounds like Paul. That's exactly where Paul was in his life and in his death. He did not have any regrets. So a question for you, class, is this. What kind of departure will you have? Do you have that same confidence about your own death and departure that Paul had, that William Borden had? Do you have regrets about your life? I don't know how many times I've preached in churches and people would come up to me and they had regrets about their life. I'll never forget being in a country church where a elderly lady came to me with tears streaming down her face telling me that she had grown up in such and such a part of our country. God had called her to missions. She had married an unsaved man after that and never got to the mission field. She said, I just am filled with regrets in my life. That was a terrible marriage. My life experienced more shipwreck, regrets. I hope you don't have those. I hope if you have them, you can do something about finding relief from them. Because we all face temptations. We, we face temptations in how, the attitudes that we have in our life. Do you ever get grumpy? I think some of you probably don't get there very often, but maybe some of you get grumpy. Uh, do you ever get critical? And uh, you get kind of nasty. Uh, we can struggle with that. I hope with hindsight you say, ooh, I regret doing that. I wish I hadn't done that. Uh, what about our tongue? You ever let anything come off your tongue that you have regrets about? How about your beliefs? Have you ever gone softer on some beliefs you shouldn't go on, have gone softer on? What about various actions in your life? Uh, these are areas that we have to assess. 
But I want you to know, you and I both can face death with a buoyant faith, with joy, and no regrets. If we will do what Paul did, if we will live like he lived, where we have been a living sacrifice, and the very final thing we do as a drink offering is to lay down our very life in death to God. I've helped a church a good bit in New York State, uh, more semi-rural, and the young pastor who went there, went there when they had about 180 people, today's about 400. But as he has gone through the process of making that church more fruitful, there was a cadre of older people in that church that kept saying the statement of a dying church. You know what the statement of a dying church is? We never did it that way before. I don't know whether anybody here has ever said that or not, but that kind of thought process, we never did it that way before, will precipitate death eventually in a church. Well, he had a cadre of those kind of people in his church who uh, just continually became increasingly more grumpy, more critical. And I've often thought, I've talked to several of those people, when they get right down to their death, are they going to look back with regrets? Regrets about how they lived? I hope they think about that. Certainly, when they think about the judgment seat of Christ that is coming after they die, when they're going to be face to face with the Lord and an evaluation of their life, would they have done some things differently? Good time to think about that is on this side of death, not on that side of death. Huh? Second question I want to ask you, what kind of legacy will you leave? What kind of a legacy will you leave? Paul stated it in verse 7. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. With the Lord's help, Paul declared his life and ministry victorious. I fought the good fight. Paul lived a dedicated and disciplined life. He was dependent upon the Lord for the Lord's enablement. He was a man saved by grace who had committed himself to living fully and intimately with the Lord over the duration of his life. And what a life he lived, fighting off against the flesh, against the world, against Satan, all of these warfares that have to go on, which are good fights. And whatever else you can say about Paul, you cannot say he had an easy life or he got special privileges because he was an apostle. Paul fought every day for Jesus Christ, his commander-in-chief in his life. And the Lord's plan for Paul's life has now been finished. He lived his God-directed life and character, and the mission of Christ was his mission. The duration of life was established by Christ. Paul was living out everything that the Lord wanted him to live out in his life. How different than the mindset of our country towards retirement. The people that are around you that are not Christians and focused in the Lord, how do they think about retirement? 
ah, man, I got to retire as quickly as I can. We, Jackie and I have friends that are in their early 50s, and they were ready to retire at 50 years of age, except the stock market took a plunge here a few years ago, a couple years ago. That changed everything. And now they're shooting for two more years, and they're hoping to retire at least by the age of 55, maybe sooner. And uh, what, they want to do their thing. Uh, I don't read anything about that in the Bible, but that's where they're headed. Uh, the mass, vast majority are caught up in this worldview, think it's an entitlement. I deserve it. I'm entitled to retire as early as possible and then do what I want to do. And I want to go where the climate's warmer, maybe, and I want to be able to travel, and I want to be able to do this, I want to be able to do that. You know, we as Christians can succumb to that same kind of worldly thinking that they have if we're not very careful. I think we need to think in terms that I am going to live with the Lord and serve him fully every day of my life. I want to leave a legacy for him. I want to be all that he wants me to be. Stop to think about the people who never quit. I mean, in their old age, they were doing phenomenal things. Colonel Sanders, who founded Kentucky Fried Chicken, you know how old he was when he started Kentucky Fried Chicken and worked at it many years? Right, 65. How about uh, Benjamin Franklin? He was 81 when he brought about the compromise that led to the adoption of the United States Constitution, 81. Winston Churchill wrote a history of English-speaking people when he was 82. Michelangelo did the architectural plans for a major church in Italy when he was 88 years old. Arthur Rubinstein gave one of his greatest recitals in New York's Carnegie Hall when he was 89. Albert Schweitzer headed a hospital in Africa when he was 89. Grandma Moses started painting when, he was, when she was 90. She was still painting when she was 100. Now go over to the Bible. And in the Bible, you got Moses. Moses lived 40 years being educated, growing up as a kid, becoming a teenager, and getting all the education that the land of Egypt could give him. Then he spent 40 years on the backside of a desert, tending sheep. And then he spent 40 years leading the children of Israel. Now, how old would that make him when he quit? 120. I have a friend, and Jackie has the same friend, who lives in Binghamton, New York, who turned 95 this summer, and he still works at his real estate business six to eight hours every day. Now, he's fortunate. The Lord has given him the strength and health to be able to do that, but I got a feeling there are some mornings when he wishes he could just roll over and uh, maybe get out later in the day. And, uh, but he pushes through. He's, he's a believer, and he wants everything in his being.
He still teaches a men's Sunday school class every Sunday. That's 15 guys in it. 95 years old. His mind is sharp as a tack. He slowed down in how quickly he walks. But whenever I have lunch with him and we're going to eat in this, he always eats in a Chinese restaurant. When we're going to eat in this Chinese restaurant, he parks way off down there someplace and walks up there. Even though he's walking more like this now, instead of uh, the gait he used to have, friends, don't stop. Invest your life for God in a legacy that is going to count. And uh, I hope I can follow the pattern of some of these guys a little bit anyway. Paul's life and ministry has been true to the Lord and the Lord's truth. I have kept the faith, Paul said. The faith. That's a definite article in there, which is talking about the teachings of Scripture. Paul is saying he has kept the teachings of Scripture, the truth of God, and his life has been increasingly conformed to it, and he has not been willing to compromise any of the truth of the Scriptures. Paul has just consistently been true to the Lord all the days of his life. It's sad to watch believers at some point in their life fall by the wayside. To stop. Not Paul. I hope not you. I hope you keep pushing on. So what kind of legacy will you leave? Is a good haunting question for you to kind of think about. Uh, What are the things that you're fighting for, like what Paul fought for? Are you fighting the good fight, which means God's truth and scriptures? Hopefully you have not gotten into fighting the wrong battles, such as man-made traditions and preferences and culture that you're fighting over. Uh, I have a whole series of messages that I do in churches where I talk about this kind of thing. You know, in our churches, we have so many traditions that we've built up. We have a lot of preferences that we have built up, that we have and hold. We've built a culture in the church, and uh, every church has its culture. But friends, those are all man-made. The only thing that the Bible tells you you cannot change, and that means to add to or take away from, is the Scriptures. Anything else that's man-made can be changed and it is not compromised. You know, the car companies in this country did not want to change and they're in the process of dying. So even in corporate America, the same thing is true. God has built it into the system. He has built it into the church as well. We need to recognize that there may be the necessity to change some things. Let me show you some things here. What's God made and what is man made? That which is God made is the scriptures. And he has said, do not add to the scriptures, do not take away from the scriptures. Secondly, what is man made? It's traditions. Yeah, it's pretty amazing how many things that happen in this church are purely traditional. Anybody know a verse in the Bible that says you will have a Sunday morning service? So when you decide to have a Sunday morning service is purely traditional. 
a man-made choice. Anybody know in the Bible where it says you will have a Sunday school and you'll have a Sunday morning service and you'll have a Sunday night service? Anybody know a chapter and verse that says that? No, that's a man-made choice. That's the tradition of our churches. It may be a preference that you have, but it's not God. Mandate. So when you stop to think about it, to change God's scriptures is compromise. To change something that is man-made is not compromise. Uh, we need to realize that. And this is the area where most of the fighting in the churches is happening around this second area, the second column there, the man-made column. Uh, let me give you an illustration. I when I was president at the college and seminary, okay, I got about three minutes here. Uh, when I was at the college and seminary, a church in Detroit flew me out there to speak on a Sunday and put me up in a motel on Saturday night. And then I, the pastor picked me up and I went over to the church. And I was supposed to speak to a combined group of adult Sunday school classes and then Sunday morning and then Sunday night. After the Sunday morning service, the pastor said, uh, this couple will take you to eat at their house. And they were in their 70s. He said they have been pillars of this church, leaders in this church all their life. The lady said, you uh, sit with my husband, and when dinner is ready, I'll call you. And she called us, and we sat down, and she said, asked me if I would pray, and I prayed. Almost as quickly as I got done, one of them said, isn't it terrible how Baptist churches are compromising? And I looked at that delicious meal, and I said do I, to myself, do I want to get indigestion this early in the meal? This looks like a great meal. So I just kind of passed it over. I didn't really answer. And uh, it was a great meal. Pretty soon one of them said, isn't it terrible how Baptist churches are compromising? And I wasn't ready for indigestion yet, so I passed it over a second time. And then a third time one of them said, isn't it terrible how Baptist churches are compromising? And under my breath, I said, okay, Lord, I got you. You want me to talk to him about this? I'm like Peter once in a while. I got to get it in threes. And uh, so I said to him, what are you talking about, compromise? Well, we just came back from Florida where we were for six weeks. It was in the spring of the year, late spring. And we were in six different Baptist churches. Every one of them are compromising. I said, well, I still don't understand. Give me an illustration. Well, in that last church we were in, they did not pray before they took up the offering. And I kept a straight face, and I said to them, you know, I've been reading the Bible for a while, but I don't think I have ever read a chapter and verse where it says you have to pray before you take up the offering. So I said to them, do you know a chapter and verse where it says that? Silence. You know how before a major storm, there's often a calm? It exploded. And they said, no, we don't know of a chapter and verse, but we want to tell you it's wrong, it's compromise, it's sin. Ooh, I said, wait a minute. The only time that I know of you sin is when you violate what God says in the Bible. But you have just told me you don't find it in the Bible. Therefore, it's man-made. 
And now you have elevated this man-made thing, this tradition that you have in your church, you've elevated it to the level of, of Scripture. You're giving it the authority of Scripture. Friends, you just added to the Word of God. That's happening in our churches. It's okay to change it. Now, if you didn't have any prayer in your service, that's bad. But where's, whoever's leading the service decides to put the prayer, it's okay. Because it's a man-made choice. God left that with us. The same way with all of our various ministry expressions. Uh, Sunday school, take Sunday school. Anybody know a chapter and verse where God said you will have a Sunday school in your church? There isn't any verse that says that. When did Sunday school start? They started in the late 1800s. There were no Sunday schools before that. Oh, so it's a man-made thing then trying to accomplish a purpose that God has. So if I change that and don't have a Sunday school, am I sinning? No. That's a man-made thing. It's okay. Uh, we're having trouble in our churches distinguishing what is God-made and what is man-made. Paul, he worked through all of that. He had all of that down. Let me show it to you this way. How can you depart from the scriptures? Well, one way is to be more relative, to refer to things that are said in the Bible and make them relative. They may or may not apply. Women preachers or homosexuality or a host of other things that some churches, emerging church movement, are getting soft on, and that's more relative. And that is compromise. When you are less than the word of God, you are compromising. However, on the other end of the spectrum, and this is where a lot of our older people fall, they don't fall on the other side, they fall on this side, where they have become more legalistic. And they have taken a kernel of truth and they've pushed it beyond anything that God intended. And friends, that's just as much compromise as being less than the Bible. Being more than the Bible is just as much compromise. And I could take you into a whole lot of areas where I could show you that scripturally. Quickly, what kind of reward will you receive? That all depends on how the previous, you've done the previous two. And here, so you can fill in the blanks. Here we see Paul's face shining so brightly that the darkness of the Roman prison cell seems to disappear. What will that reward be like? That reward, had, according to Paul in his verse here, he said it's laid up for him in the crown of righteousness. It will be a guaranteed reward. God is going to give this reward. It's guaranteed. It's laid up. It's in store. It's in place already. Okay? It will be a glorious reward. It's a crown of righteousness. It will be a personal reward. Paul teaches that we must all appear before the judgment of seat of Christ, that each one, each one of us may be recompensed according to the deeds we have done in our body. It will be a future reward. 
that day is coming. It's yet to be. It will be a shared reward, not just for Paul, but for all of us who are going to live in such a way that we will be able to get that reward. We keep on fighting, we keep on running, we keep on believing, we keep laying down our lives for the Lord, and we need to finish strong, finish strong, finish strong. Friends, I hope that's the way you're going to finish. And that's going to drive your life by the grace of God that you are going to be that kind of a follower of Christ. I got to stop here because I've run past a little bit. And I want to stop so you can get on with the other things here. But I want to pray with you before we uh, take the break. Father, help us to capture how we should live in this world all the days of our life. Thank you for these who are here. And we believe that among these folks are some very choice servants and people who have lived faithfully for you for a great number of years. And some of them are perhaps moving more towards the place where Paul was, where their departure will be at hand. Help them to live without regrets. Help them to live anticipating the crown. And Father, might they leave behind a legacy for you and the church that will have made a difference in the lives of people. In Christ's name, amen. Pastor?